This is Local Color, distributed by Your Public Studios, a podcast dedicated to the artists, entrepreneurs, and social innovators using their talents to make Baltimore and the DMV a better place. I'm your host, Jason V, and on the show today, Maryland State Senator Antonio Hayes. Born and raised in West Baltimore just steps away from Penn North, Senator Hayes was a civil servant before he began serving the state of Maryland in earnest. The longer he worked to better the lives of the people in the 40th district, the more they trusted him to do so. As a state senator, he works alongside other governing bodies to make Baltimore and Maryland a more wonderful place to live. The only thing saving us from the bureaucracy is its own inefficiency. That's a quote from a lesser-known senator and 0 for 4 presidential candidate, Eugene McCarthy. The whirlwind of paperwork, the meetings, the compromising, it's all part of this Byzantine machine that slowly grinds the world forward to a much better tomorrow. Sometimes I think you have to be crazy to be a civil servant. The pay varies from really good to don't quit your day job, but you can't because it is your day job. It seems thankless, tiresome, and turbulent during election years or in times of crisis. But it can also be rewarding, and for many, the reward is the act of service to the people itself. Before he became a state senator, Antonio Hayes was looking for an opportunity to serve his city and serve people he knew in his neighborhood. In a turn of luck that can only be seen as serendipitous, the state reached out a hand to help the young man and start his political career. Before you became a lawmaker, you were a community organizer for Citizens Planning and Housing Association. Can you talk a little bit about those times and what those times meant to you? Yeah, absolutely. I've had the great fortune, not only in my service and public service, but also um, even prior to this, serving representing the communities of West Baltimore that I grew up in. And so when I served as an organizer, it was a grant from the governor's office of crime control and prevention at that time under a program called Hotspots. And so the idea was to have people from the community work with various partners in the law enforcement continuum to address and prevent crime um, in their own communities. It really lend itself to an opportunity where communities could be a part of the problem solving as it relates um, to crime in their own communities. And so I I believe that experience um, really helped me a lot in my growth and and taught me some skills that I continue to use um, even today as a public servant and serving in the Maryland Senate. And was it that experience that got you interested in running for office or did you have some other motivation that made you want to go from a private citizen to a representative of the people? Yeah, I think it was a culmination of things, right? Um, I think growing up uh, in Penn North off of Edna and Whitelock Street, um, I, I, I think my first kind of introduction to organized civic engagement was at Parkview Recreation Center and an after-school program called Youth United for Success, where as a participating member of that organization as a young person, we were required to be civically engaged, right? And so we attended city council meetings. We, had, we went down to Annapolis. We um, led protests in our own communities. And um, that I think that experience really ignited my interest in public service. And that was, you know, during my middle school years, fast forward, you know, years later in 1998, I came home to Baltimore from while a student at Frostburg and uh, 
I didn't have a summer job. And a big cousin of mine was like, bro, you need to do something productive. Why don't you come volunteer on this lady named Van Verna Jones campaign? And that was in 1998. Um, so my, my first experience in volunteering on the campaign was in 1998 for a lady named Verna Jones who was running for the House of Delegates. Luckily, um, she had ran prior to. Uh, luckily, uh, with my participation, and I'm sure because she had learned from previous uh, elections, she actually won that race. But from there, um, I, I think the connection was made from my days at Youth United for Success and my childhood in middle school to like, all right, there are like communities, not just, uh, you know, here in Baltimore City, but but communities throughout the state that want to see better um, for their neighborhoods. And so I think making that connection really propelled me into um, the political arena. And ultimately, I, I worked helping a lot of people getting elected. Um, and then it was in 2000. Six, I think, was my first time running for office. I lost that race by 80 votes. So for those young people who may be listening who don't think votes matter, uh, remember, you know, I lost by less than 100 votes. Our own Congressman Kwasi Fume lost his won his first race for city council by only three votes. And so uh, when people say votes don't matter, they absolutely matter. Definitely lessons learned. Yeah, and um, when I spoke with Councilwoman Odette Ramos about uh, her path to to the city council, she also talked about it's kind of a rite of passion for you to take that L, and then if you if you got the the courage to come back again, you just might win that one. But it also seems like uh, if you're trying to uh, win a race, uh, Antonio Hayes is your guy. <laughs> yeah, I think every path is different for sure. Yeah. So you suffered a loss in uh, 2006 uh, in your first run for office. But from from my research, and, and please correct me if this is incorrect, uh, from about 2014 or 2014, rather, is that when you were first elected into office uh, at, as a, a delegate? Correct. Yeah, I, I was first elected to the Merrill House of Delegates in, in 14. Um, I served one four year term. Um, and then I ran um, for the Senate at the time, you know, my my, my senator, uh, who I thought would be there for a very long time, decided to run for mayor uh, and it created an opportunity. And, 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 you know, just a lesson learned, speaking of losses, that actually I had my second loss. Right. So when 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 there's an absent uh, seat in the House of the Senate, um, the members of the Democratic State Central Committee or the local Central Committee vote for the replacement. I actually put my hat in a ring to replace um, then Senator Catherine Pugh, uh, but I was unsuccessful at getting the, the the required amount of majority votes to the seven members of the State Central Committee to vote. But when I took my case to the voters of the 40th district, um, I actually had an opportunity to be successful in that race. And so it's been an awesome experience serving both in the House, um, in the Senate, and and in the communities that I grew up in all my life. On a scale of zero to House of Cards, what was the climate like when uh, Mayor Pugh had vacated her seat do you feel like other people, everybody was kind of lining up to to run and, and take that seat? Like how how intense was the campaign and that entire process? Yeah. So it's different than an electoral campaign, right? Like you have to go out to the masses and raise a obscene amount of money in certain cases. And, and, and you know, your audience when when a seat is vacated is, you know, what the state central committee is seven people. And so um, and most of them 
Um, and, and also, you know, step back, the state central committee are elected themselves. It's a volunteer position. Um, oh. so they're not compensated for it. And so, um, oftentimes they depend on a leadership of the Senator or the other representatives in the area, but it's really convincing four out of seven people. I, I'm fortunate that I was able to take my case to the voters and, um, they saw fit to, to have me serve them in the Maryland Senate. Gotcha, gotcha. And so I, I did lose you for a little bit, so I'm sorry if uh, you're you repeat uh, something that you said when I asked this question. Don't worry, happy to. Okay. Um. So I wanted to talk about the differences, uh, or or like the levels of service as a delegate and then as a state senator. Can you talk about the differences in how these roles serve Marylanders? Yeah, absolutely. So every legislative district have three delegates and one senator. And, you know, as I meet colleagues from around the country, it's different, right? And in some cases, the senator has a larger district, and then each of the members, you know, we're one of the only places in the country that call it the House of Delegates. In some places like New York, they call it assemblymen or, or whatever it may be. But in Maryland, all three delegates and the senator all share the same geography of people that they represent. Being one of three and especially one of 141 members of the House of Delegates, I felt often that my voice was um, drowned out a little bit. Um, I think, uh, you know, there, there are certain responsibilities also that differentiate the role of a member of the House of Delegates versus in the Senate, um, just, you know, as simple as confirmation, right? So every appointment that the governor makes to lead an agency or a board or commission is confirmed by the Maryland Senate. The House of Delegates really doesn't have a official um, role or authority in that process. Uh, and, and so um, I've enjoyed being in the Maryland Senate, being one of 47 versus one of 141, definitely give you a different le platform level. Um, but, you know, I, I honor and cherish the days that I had the chance to serve in the House, because I think with so many people in the House, you have an opportunity to really scrutinize legislative proposals as they come before you. Oftentimes on Senate committees, you may have no more than 11. I think the largest committee in the Senate has 13 members, mm -hmm. where in the House, you could have anywhere from 21 to 25 members on a legislative committee. And so in the Senate, it forces you to do a lot of the work ahead of time. You can't necessarily rely or depend on other colleagues to ask the questions because there's so few of you um, in a room. There's also um, just procedural things that are big difference in the House and the Senate, right? Um, in the House of Delegates, they have what they call a second reader rule. And, and typically bills aren't debated. Bills hit the floor three times, one on introduction, two um, on a committee report, and three for final passage. When it's reported out of committee in the House of Delegates, there is rarely any debate, if ever, right? But in the Senate, every bill will rise or fall on its own merits. And so you could get into a heavy debate and take a vote and, and, and see a bill die on second reader. The same thing could happen on third reader. I think, you know, the way they operate are different. The the size of the bodies are different. And the the um I think the camaraderie is, is kind of different. But I honor both of the experiences that I've had an opportunity to serve uh, because I'm representing the best district in the state of Maryland here in Baltimore. 
<laughs> well, we appreciate you, sir. I don't know actually if I'm in the 40th district. You're in Reservoir Hill. You're absolutely in the 40th, right? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome, <laughs> awesome. <laughs> um, so as you've mentioned, uh, you currently serve Maryland and Marylanders as a state senator. Uh, that is a seat or position you uh, won in 2019. And when I was doing my research, uh, kind of as you were saying with like the Del the House of Delegates and the uh, the Maryland State Senate, like the delegate, the House of Delegates is the lower house, but it has more people. And then the Senate is the upper house, which has less people. Oh my God, they would die if they heard you say that. <laughs> Can I get it backwards? <laughs> we say that all the time, but it's it's kind of slander to members of the House of Delegates. <laughs> oh, well, I apologize in advance. Please don't come for me. <laughs> um, all good. So when I was doing this research, uh, I, I was like, I know that so there's Antonio Hayes, but like, who are, who's like Ben Cardin and Chris Van Hollen. And then I, yeah. I learned, you know, there's the state senators um, and then there's like the United States senators. So right. can you explain the difference between the two and do y'all ever like work together on legislation? Yeah, absolutely. And that's a great question. And look, don't beat up on yourself. There's plenty of people that vote for me every year and they still could not articulate the difference. Right. Um, <laughs> and because it's just really hard and most people have other competing priorities in their lives and they're not worried about like, who do I call for this or what level do someone serve me on? It's like, how do I get food, shelter and a safe community that they, those are their priorities right so don't beat up yourself at all one of the big difference um and uh the difference between a state senator versus a u.s senator is our terms right so the amount of years in which we serve when the voters of maryland um elect me they elect me to serve a four-year term in the United States Senate, they elect U.S. senators to six-year terms, right? Okay. And I think that's intentional, providing our U.S. Constitution that there's some continuity of government that their, their terms are longer than that of the president, right? And then on a, on, a, on a state Senate level, we work more closely and directly. We um, make laws on behalf of the state of Maryland, and they're ex executed by the governor of our state. Senator Cardin make laws on behalf of the United States of America, and those laws are executed by the president of the United States. And then on a local level, I, I know you mentioned um, City Councilwoman Ramos um, on a local level. Actually, Baltimore City government, there used to be two branches of city council, right? Really? And so that was at a time where the population in Baltimore City was larger than the rest of the state of Maryland combined, right? So there was more people living in Baltimore City than the rest of the state. And so, you know, just a little bit of, bit of nerdy, uh, like history politically. Yes, yes. go for um, nerdy. The Baltimore City Police Department used to be the official um, militia of the state government. Right. And so the, the police commissioner was appointed by the governor. Um, it was the largest professional law enforcement agency um, in the state. Um, and it wasn't until um, in the last couple of centuries that that power have been um, redirected or reappropriated to the city of Baltimore. But um, for a long time, Baltimore City was the um was for lack of a better word, the big dog in the room. When when I first <laughs> interned um for the legislature, wow. Oh my God, I'm I'm going back. I think my first time interning in a legislature was in probably 99 or 2000. Um, because our districts, um, you know, our legislative districts are 
drawn or considered based off of population, right? And Baltimore City, as you as you probably have heard, the population in Baltimore City has, has reduced dramatically. Yeah. But because of the population in Baltimore City back in 2000, when I first served as an intern, we used to have 29 delegates. We used to have 10 senators that represented Baltimore City. Because of the population decrease, we now have only 15 delegates that represent Baltimore city and we only have five senators. Right. And so um, the population has really shifted from out of Baltimore into more of the DC suburbs around Prince George and Montgomery County. Um, Mm -hmm. We used to be the big fish in the room, but now um, we've dwarfed over the years um, and our representation in Annapolis um, as a political base due to the loss of population here in the city. Uh, so you bring that that's something interesting that I hadn't uh, considered and that makes me think of uh, another question before we jump into um, the time to care act when people started noticing and lawmakers started noticing that the the demographics and the population of Baltimore City was declining. How do you frankly like tell a senator like hey your job's not going to be here anymore like what was that were you were you uh, able to see that up close like someone was a senator this year, but next year they're not a senator because the population just doesn't require so many? Yeah, so um, I was a youngster when many of these things were unfolding. Um, This past, so, you know, as a result of uh, the census every 10 years, we then, as a result of that redistrict our legislative boundaries. And so typically when, when, when that effect is felt is usually every 10 years. And so this year, Um, we did actually lose a senator, right? Um, We lost a senator who used to represent Baltimore City and Baltimore County. And because he lived in Baltimore County, now he simply represent Baltimore County. But in previous years, you had where two senators, um, their district, their legislative districts were combined. And it was, and depending on how much um, they affection their voters had for them or, uh, what they felt like who would be their best representative. They both, they, you know, those senators have fought it out or those delegates have fought it out um, in elections and, and, and win, lose, or draw. At the end of the day, you know, the citizens of Baltimore and citizens of Maryland make those choices and who they want to represent them. But um, in those times, it, it caused for a lot of detention because, you know, oftentimes there's there's some vigorous debate on the floor of both the House and the Senate. But at the end of the day, you spend a tremendous amount of time with your colleagues. And so there's some level of congeniality that is lost when, you know, you lose a member um, of, of those bodies, but it, it just happens. And so this year, at least here in Baltimore City, our, our loss wasn't as significant but in previous years, as we've lost representation, um, it's definitely put some pretty significant representation against one another in, in, in the political race. It's 2023 now, and we are, I want to say, like two and a half to three years past COVID. Uh, in 2022, in the beginning of 2022, actually, you brought legislation to the floor, the Time to Care Act. Uh, and it ended up passing and the Time to Care Act will, gave employees um, partial salary if they need time off to care for a relative. Um, 
looking at the span of time between when it was brought to the floor and passed, that's that's four months. Is a bill's speedy passage in the law common in the state Senate or, you know, are you are you just a man? No, no, not at all. Not at all. No, uh, which one? So, so literally our, our, our legislative session is from January to April. So it's 90 days. It, it expands from January through April. Okay. Um, and so that's the main time we meet every now and then we have a special session. But for the most part, it's within those 90 days. Um, in 2022, that was actually my third year introducing this piece of legislation. I had introduced it in two prior legislative sessions. Mm-hmm. Um, it was in 2022 um, where I think we had gained enough momentum and enough support from the voters that we said, all right, we're going to actually move this forward. And a lot of people didn't think that uh, we would be able to get something like this passed because um, it levies a fee or contribution from a lot of businesses. So people like, oh, wow, you know, you're going to, you know, raise a fee or, you know, some people call it a tax even on individuals. But for me, it was really, really important. Right. I like I like I said to you earlier, I grew up in Penn North and like many young people that grow up in the inner city. Um, my mom substance, suffered from substance abuse at a very, very young age. Um, it was on the corners of Pennsylvania Avenue and Fulton Avenue where I saw her succumb to substance abuse. And had it not been for the prayer and the fortitude of my grandmother, I wouldn't have half of the opportunities um, that I have today. And so um, in middle school, my grandmother took me into her home, helped raise me until I matriculated through college. And I later, in my later years, I found um, the roles of caregiving had reversed. My grandmom over 10 years ago began to suffer from Alzheimer's uh, and then and dementia. She had been my caregiver for years. It was now my responsibility and the shared responsibility of several of my relatives to take care of her. Luckily, I've been very, very fortunate to work for the government that afford opportunities for you to take off work and caregive. Oftentimes, there's far too many Marylanders that don't have that um, privilege to take off work and be compensated for that time as they care give for a loved one like a grandmother or others. Or um, just, and, and, and it's interesting, in 2022 is when my son was born. My first child was born in February uh, 28th of 2022. Too. And so this legislation affords those individuals who just experienced the birth of a child to take off for work without being penalized. A lot of times people have to make a decision on whether or not they even go to work or they go without means to raise their families. And I've learned very much so through experience those early days of having a having a um, newborn child are the days where, you know, you require that bonding time um, with them. And so I wanted to make sure that, you know, I not just fought for, you know, my family, but so many families that don't work for an employer that provide for the type of benefit where individuals can care give for loved ones um, and experience the birth of a new child. Oh, well, um, I really appreciate that. And also congratulations on Thank the you. Uh, birth of your, uh, is it a, a son? Yeah. Or no? Yes, Antonio Hayes Jr. 
Oh, uh, there you go. My my wife and I are actually expecting in January. So uh, congrats. It's the best experience I've ever had. I can't wait until I wait. I can't believe I waited until I was 45 to have a yeah. son. He's, he's the best thing that's ever happened to me. I, I like I can't uh, get enough of him. Uh, you know, I take probably take pictures of him every day. I'm I'm his biggest <laughs> fan and stalker. <laughs> that's good. That's good. I um people are kind of saying the same thing for us as well. But when we're going through this registry and we're looking at the price of everything, um, it's yeah. it's a lot. And I we somebody gifted us like a box of diapers. I was like, oh yeah, a hundred diapers. That should last me like a few months. <laughs> and my one friend was like, that's gonna last you like maybe two weeks, maybe three yeah, a couple weeks. Of weeks. Couple of weeks. You'll be fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm telling you, look. The, the, it, it is cost. It, it's, it's a lot of cost in raising a child. And that's why um, we want to make sure that, you know, stuff like paid family leave or avoid it to family members um, to do that. But I'm telling you, the days that you spend with your child will, will, will far erase any concerns you have about what you're paying. So I, I get it. Um, awesome. It's tough, but you'll, you'll enjoy it. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. I'm really um, looking forward to it. We're going to take a quick break, and when we return, I continue my conversation with State Senator Antonio Hayes. I'm Jason V. This is Local Color. Stay with us. I'm Jason V. This is Local Color, and my guest is State Senator Antonio Hayes. Let's move forward now to the West North Avenue uh, Development Authority. Uh, For those that don't know, that's an $11 million initiative to revitalize that area, West North Avenue. Um, I live, like I said, in Reservoir Hill. And where I'm at, if if I walk down my street and then get to North Avenue, I think the closest cross street is Utah. And then, yeah, West would just be obviously closer towards like Coppin and stuff. But we also got the Druid Hill Park project, which mm-hmm. uh, has been, you know, wrapping up traffic uh, near Druid Hill Park for the last, I want to say, like months, maybe even years at this point. Um, so depending on when this uh, re- development authority like project starts and when the Druid Hill Park project ends, like residents are going to be stuck basically sandwiched in between construction zones and having to deal with different traffic patterns and all that kind of stuff. So why is now a good time for this um, development initiative? Yeah, so I grew up um, in West Baltimore, like I said, all my life, um, right down the street from you, off of Edna Whitelock Street. Uh, for for a large part of my formative years, I, I never moved out of a four block radius in that Penn North community. Mm-hmm. And over the years, I've seen investment happening meaning all in all other places, right? Um, whether you go to in our Har- Harbor East or, you know, Federal Hill or Fells Point, um, there are investments, there are amenities that serve the whole community. For whatever reason, we have been left out in West Baltimore, right? And if you look at the history of West Baltimore, East and West Baltimore, as you know, even you know after being here whatever amount of time you've been here, yeah. in East Baltimore, you have a smaller housing stock because in East Baltimore, that was where a lot of the laborers live. Like they, they live up on a plateau and they can literally see down to the port and knew if they had work for the day. But in Baltimore, especially in communities like yours in Reservoir Hill, you have these grand three-story homes Mm -hmm. um, that, you know, take up a lot of real estate. 
because West Baltimore is where a lot of the professional class, especially the black middle class live. Um, that was the home of the Mitchell family that born people like, you know, Juanita Mitchell, who was a renowned civil rights leader, Congressman, Congressman Mitchell, first African-American congressman uh, from the state of Maryland, um, doctors, lawyers. It was where uh, three of the four HBCUs in Maryland were founded, right? Morgan State University um, was founded and started on Saratoga Street. Bowie State University was on another street in West Baltimore. There, that West Baltimore was where the intellects, especially in the African-American community, thrive. Nowadays, if people want to go out and have a good time and go to a place um, and to be surrounded by other young professionals, often they migrate from Baltimore and they go to D.C., yeah. Um, back in the day, in the heyday, D.C. used to come to Baltimore. Baltimore was a spot, right? Like if you <laughs> wanted to see a, a nationally known comedian or singer or entertainer, you came to Pennsylvania Avenue, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, a lot of people say, you know, have said to me, um, literally, I was elected. I, I was elected 2014. My first time serving in the in elected office was in 2015, January 2015, April 2015. I had just completed my first legislative session in Annapolis, and a week later was the uprising of Freddie Gray. Mm. Right, and so this was my very first session. And oftentimes, um, I would go and talk to people who misrepresented. Um, what has happened in West Baltimore. Some people would often say to me, you guys haven't done anything since the uprising. I would say there hasn't been large investment in West Baltimore since the riots of 1968. Mm. When Dr. King died and there was riots all throughout West Baltimore, up and down North Avenue and up and down Pennsylvania and North Avenue. And so construction is often a sign of progress Right. that um, we are um, moving forward in investment as a city and in a state. And I think the West North Avenue Development Authority brings that to fruition. We started the West North Avenue um, Development Authority back in 2021. Okay. We started off with a half, half a million dollar budget. We had a quarter million from the city, a quarter million from the state. Last year, we got another... Um, half a million dollars. And this is just operating. This is to hire staff to work on behalf of those communities. But in addition to the half a million, we got another million dollars in capital so we could actually invest in brick and mortar and help some of the development deals take place. So we went from a half a million dollars to 1.5 million to um, just this year, we uh, were able to garner $11.4 million as, as you alluded to. Yeah, And so- this will create an awesome opportunity for us to rebuild the glory that, you know, I often hear my grandmother and my mom and my aunties talk about, um, you know, back in the day, you used to be able to go on North Avenue, Pennsylvania and North Avenue and buy a suit or buy a brand new pair of shoes or, you know, have your shoes shined in that case. Um, it was where jobs were created. It was where entertainers flocked to. Um, I've seen pictures of Dr. King and former presidents walking up and down Pennsylvania Avenue to garner, um, you know, votes from Baltimoreans. Um, but if you look up and if you walk up and down some of those streets today, mm -hmm. um, you see the disinvestment. It smacks you right in the face, right? With the abundance of vacant houses, 
um, the lack of commercial and retail activity that happened in the corridor. North Avenue is the second highest travel bus route in the state of Maryland, second highest travel bus route in the state of Maryland. And so, you know, as we talk about, you know, um, the traffic that's happening there, more people, um, and I believe uh, some of the numbers that North Avenue Rising has showed us, more people along West North Avenue use mass transportation as their primary source of transportation than own cars. And so uh, that that's why when you go up and down North Avenue, you see the red dedicated bus lanes. It's because the majority of people that live there, they depend on public transit. They don't own a car. And so I yearn to see the day where we get interrupted by a little bit of traffic for the sake of seeing um, investment in the communities that I hold near and dear. I think that's, um, you know, fantastic news for the community. And now that I think about it, um, there's also the um, Madison Park North, which I think has been renamed to like Reservoir Square. I will tell you as a constituent, we liked Madison Park North, but you know, at the end of the day, <laughs> as yeah. long as it happens, um, we'll Indeed. be okay. Cause I know my, my neighbor a few doors down, he's been living in Reservoir Hill for a while now. And he was saying like, that place used to be kind of, kind of rough. So he's yep. really excited. It was, it was pretty bad. Do you know that Drew Hill Park is the third largest urban park in the nation? So I had been looking at that because the, <laughs> the same guy that designed, I think Central Park did Druid. Yeah. Um, and Drew Hill Park is bigger than Central Park. It is? It is. I always thought Central Park was this some you know, huge, what, huge thing. A lot of people look at the park and they forget that the Maryland Zoo is there. And, yeah. and all of the other things that it, it takes up a lot of real estate. It's a really big park. But, you know, and one of the things I'm excited about right now, the project that's taking place is a water wastewater project. Mm -hmm. But after that project has come to a conclusion, Rex and Parks will begin the implementation of their plan and, and upgrading the park. Right now, if you go to Drew Hill Park with your family um, and you guys are picnicking or whatever, there's no place for you to purchase a bottle of water. You can't even buy a bag of chips. And so the lack of commerce, the lack of activity that happened in Drill Park, um, and then you look at Central Park and how that has been, you know, at the epicenter of commerce and and other development, I think that Drew Hill's heart can be can leverage the communities that surround it, just as you know Central Parks and other parks throughout the nation um, have done in, in cities all around America. It's interesting you bring that up. I've never thought about a park being an economic engine in a neighborhood. Those are all public works projects that I, I as a homeowner, somebody living here is really excited for. But I will say, though, you can't make the omelet without breaking a few eggs. What is your response to people who might say these development projects are great, but you're, you're going to be pushing people out of the neighborhood? You're going to be pricing people out. How do you respond to that? Good question. So the West North Avenue Development Authority encompasses 2.4 city miles, right? Mm -hmm. With within that footprint, we have an access 1,200 units which were developed. The only new construction in West Baltimore in that 2.4 miles up until now with Madison Park North have been what we refer to as uh, it's called the low income tax credit. And so it's a credit that's offered to the federal government. It infuses a lot of cash to the developer, but it's to preserve affordable housing. When you do a light tech tax credit deal, you can't have no more than 15% market rate. Everything else have to be 60 to 80% the area median income. 
And so pretty much people that are nearly and living close to poverty. And so from if you come from Walbrook Junction, um, there's two projects on both sides of the street that are both low income tax credit properties. You come closer to Coppin, there's another big unit apartment building there. If you turn the corner on Clifton Avenue, uh, New Shallow has New Shallow Village. They have two um, low income tax credit uh, projects there. They're about to start building their third one. If you go on, if you make a left on Pennsylvania Avenue off of North Avenue, there's a light tech project there. If you look across from the subway station at Mondaman, there's another light tech project there. And so we have a tremendous amount of um, low income tax credit deals, which preserves the affordability. If you do a light tech tax credit d- deal, it has to be income limited for no less than 30 years. Okay. And often after 30 years, they renew that um, commitment because that's the only way they get financing. What we don't have is a diversity of income and a diversity of thought. Um, in our community. And oftentimes when retailers are looking to to move to places, they look at that area median income. And right now we are not attracting um, the diversity of incomes to, uh, you know, attract a grocery store or um, other amenities that we see in other communities that we consider to be thriving um, communities. And so it's incumbent upon us um, also, as elected officials, as leaders, as leaders in the community and policymakers, to make sure that we afford the opportunity to not displace individuals, especially legacy residents that have been in the community for a very long time. One thing that this development authority will not do is displace a resident, right? By acquiring a home that is occupied. Mm-hmm. The only the only buildings that we're looking at and we're prioritizing is those who are those that are vacant. If there is a property that is occupied, it is of no interest to the development authority because far too many times we've seen these big projects come in and they purchase the the property of homeowners or renters and then they demolish it and clear it away for a big apartment building or whatever the next big sexy thing for that community to do. That's not our interest. We we do not want to displace people in that way. But we also have to make sure as we bring the various amenities to the community that we advocate and and, and lobby and, and pass policies that pre- preserve the space for people to live. That's why this year, I advocated for the homeowner's tax credit. If you're a senior who is making um, a certain level of funding, which typically is low income, um, you have to apply every year just to take benefit of the homeowner's tax credit, which is way more lucrative than the homestead tax credit. And so the legislation that I passed this year said, look, if you meet the qualification, if you're living on nothing but social security, why should we force you to fill out this long piece of paper? That's just another barrier to taking advantage of these tax credits, which often would lead to displacement if they were taxed out. And so why don't we at least extend that to every three years? And so now that we've had success there, I'm going to be looking at how can we expand that even more? Um, Just as we talked about earlier, a lot of times, Um, legislation, especially righteous legislation that advocates on behalf of people and and, and mostly underserved people, it takes some time. And sometimes you have to take incremental steps in order to make progress. 
one of the institutions that I hold near and dear to my heart is Coppin State University, right? If you're a young person, a young African-American going to school here in Baltimore, unless you move to one of the, you know, more swanky neighborhoods like a Federal Hill, Fells Point or whatever, or if you happen to live in Mount Vernon, our communities in, in deep east and deep west don't afford you the opportunity to, once you graduate, to set up, you know, a, to, to start raising a family here. And so that's why a couple of years ago, I advocated for a piece of legislation called Live Near Your School, right? A lot of, um, you know, students, when they first graduate, they want to find some affordable uh, rental property that they could afford and move into. And that's usually what they do. But after a couple of years of that, especially as they, you know, um, start to buckle down and get more focused on their career, they look to home ownership as an option. And one of the biggest obstacles is down payment assistance. And so the Live Near Your School program is really an initiative to encourage the government to subsidize the down payment assistance for young people to buy property close to the institutions where they secure their education. And so uh, for young people that are matriculating through the criminal justice program and the nursing program at Coppin State University or the individual artist that matriculates out of MICA right down the street, we want them to find home and a resting place in the communities right along West North Avenue um, to, you know, again, diversify the thought um, and, and, and really contribute to the community at large. That's fantastic. And it sounds like a lot of uh, your ideas and vision for the city are uh, based so much around uplifting the community. So it's really good to hear that because at the end of the day, that's all we really have. Um, we're going to start wrapping up here. Uh, this question is really just like only for my personal benefit. I'm a, I would say my politics yeah. lean a little bit more progressive yeah. and I'm a bit of a dreamer as well. Mm -hmm. So how could I, as just like a regular citizen, if I wanted to get ranked choice voting for Maryland, how, how could I work with my senator to uh, make that or make that dream a reality? Right. And so I say the, the best way to engage with any elected official, whether it be your you know local city council person, your state senator, delegate or even someone on the U.S. level is find issues that are important to you. Um, and write or reach out to your um, legislators and advocate uh, for them. Um, I will tell you, uh, representing West Baltimore, I couldn't have dreamed for a better job, right? Mm -hmm. um, I love it. But what, what often disappoints me more than anything else, when it comes to issues that's before the legislature, I very rarely hear from people in my district. I'm more likely to hear from individuals in Western Maryland about black bear hunting than I am to somebody that live right here in West Baltimore to talk about um, the unfair cost of their health insurance. Right. I'm more than likely to hear from someone uh, in Eastern Shore about oysters in the Bay wow. than I am to hear from somebody in, in West Baltimore to talk about the appraisal gap, the fact that you could purchase a home for $20,000, it takes you $150,000 to renovate it, but the 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 market in the distressed area in the home of redlining will only afford you a sales price of eighty dollars or $90,000. Mm. That is one of the most disappointing parts um, of my, my job and my task there. So I think if there are issues that are concerned of you, 
reach out to your legislators, tell them how you feel um, about certain issues. They may or may not agree with you um, or whatever the topic is, but they owe you an explanation. As, as, as I said, like, we work on behalf of the citizens of Baltimore and the state of Maryland. And so um, they should be able to articulate and explain to you um, why they're not on the same page or for whatever reason, but give them an opportunity to be responsive by reaching out to them and letting them know how you, where you stand on any individual issue. Do you have anything coming up that you want to talk about any legislation or just uh, anything for the, um, the development authority? Absolutely. So we're always active, but there's a couple of things that we do on a yearly basis. And so one of the things that we do, we offer legislative bond initiatives. So for nonprofit organizations that are looking for a home or looking to renovate um, buildings or expand, we offer capital funding to renovate or acquire buildings on behalf of community-based nonprofits. And so next month in October, we'll have an orientation, um, which will come out from our office to tell people how to apply um, for that funding. Um, I would encourage those who are listening um, in the audience to go to www.antoniohayes.com to sign up to get updates from our office. We oft often send out information about resources that are available. So in October, we will be soliciting proposals for our capital bond money. In December, we will likely be having those persons who want to seek the money present in behalf of our community. We, I see and we see our opportunity to serve as a partnership with the communities that we represent. Mm -hmm. And so instead of us making the decisions in a closed door um, somewhere in afar, we invite all of our community members into the presentation where everyone has to set their proposal out in the public um, to see what is in the best interest of the 40th district. And so that's in December. Every January, the Saturday before session start, the session usually starts the second Wednesday after the first Tuesday in the month of January. Mm -hmm. That prior, the Saturday prior to session start, we call all of our residents um, into a room. We usually meet at the University of Maryland, Baltimore in the southwest part of our district. And we want to know. What are your priorities? What, what is it that you'd like to see us get done in Annapolis? We share with our constituents what some of our ideas are, and then we provide feedback. We often have you know speakers. And so that's in January. And so, like I told you, session is from January through April. So in the middle of session, probably around February or March, we invite our constituents. We usually have two buses at Madame and one bus at the more Southern end. We bring our constituents down to Annapolis to give them a progress report on where we are. In January, we told you we sought out to do this. Here we are in February, March. This is what we've done. This is how much we got to get done. Um, and so we bring them down to Annapolis to give them that report. And then at the end of session in May, we come back to our constituents and say, hey, look, this is what we got accomplished this session. This is what we didn't get accomplished. This is what we hope to do next year. And so those are the that is kind of the litany of things to come um, and how people can engage. But I would definitely encourage people to go to www.antoniohays.com or for those who don't have access to the Internet, as we still try to uh, bridge that digital gap, they can reach out to our office at 410 841 
310-841-3656. That's 410-841-3656. Uh, and leave us a message and reach out to us. But uh, we will we will do our very best to continue to keep the public informed about what we're doing and, you know, how things go. I was very, very lucky this past legislative session out of 188 members in the House and the Senate combined, I passed the second highest amount of bills. So not just out of the Senate, but out of the entire legislature and they were signed before the governor. And so I worked very, very hard um, on behalf of our constituents. And so I look forward and I appreciate hearing from them at any time. Senator Antonio Hayes, thanks so much for uh, taking time out of your day to talk with me. Indeed. Have a good one. Be blessed. That was State Senator Antonio Hayes. He represents the 40th District. Head over to AntonioHayes.com to learn more about his work and to join his newsletter to stay plugged in and engaged with the community. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Local Color. The podcast is hosted and produced by me, Jason V. The podcast is distributed by Your Public Studios. New episodes of Local Color will be released the second and fourth Wednesday of each month. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. Learn more about Local Color at WYPR.org.